Father, we, we come before you to worship you. You are our God. You are our Father. You are our Deliverer, our Redeemer. You are our King. You are our Lord, our Savior, our Justifier. You created each one of us. You've numbered the hairs on each one of our heads. You know what is in our minds and in our hearts better than we could possibly know ourselves. And we have come here to worship you. And we've come to worship you, God, with divided hearts. Because though we believe these things and know these things to be true and have seen it and experienced it, we all come in here battling the desires of our flesh, the desires to make this temporary earth our home, the doubts that we have that you are actually who you say you are and that your way is better to trust that you really are faithful to complete the work that you have began in us. So God, I pray that this morning that when those things arise in us, that Holy Spirit, you would confront those things with kindness and compassion as you always do. And that you would make us soft. That we might have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that would love and that we would that we would see your light flood our hearts and that we would respond to these glorious things. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, if you missed it, we talked about the Antichrist. So uh, if you did miss that, and that's the first you have heard that we, we talked about that, now that might be the, this may be the first time that you go on the website to try to find last week's message. So we, kinda, we talked about that and talked about the way of Jesus and how the person and the work of Jesus is all sufficient and that the way of the Antichrist is opposed to Christ. It is, and the way that the Antichrist works, as, as John talks about, the way the Antichrist works is to um, diminish the person and the work of Jesus. To say that the person and the work of Jesus is insufficient to bring about all that God has ordained. And so we, we try to just root ourselves in that to then say, okay, well, if I believe that he is, if I say, no, Christ is sufficient. Say like his work is sufficient to bring about all things. Well, then what do I do in a world that feels like it's going off the rails? What do I do? Like, do we just sit by and say, okay, Jesus, come quickly. I'm just going to be hanging out over here in my own little bubble, in my own little world. And like, whatever happens to the, to the world around me happens because eventually I know you're coming back. Do we just do that? Or is there a way that Christ has empowered us to overcome the world, to see the kingdom of God advance? I understand this, this tension, and I understand this grief, and, and that, that tension and that desire to see God's kingdom come and to see it here on earth has led the church, at least in this country, to be the most divided that it has ever been. 
And I understand the, the grief over what has been lost. For, for some of you, you remember a time where it felt like your whole community loved God and honored him. And so that's where we get kind of this narrative of this idea that, that like, well, okay, well, our problem is that we, we kicked God out of our country. We kicked him out of our schools. We kicked him out of our courthouses. We kicked, we're trying to kick him out everywhere. And now we're reaping what we sow. And so that has fueled this idea that we have to get things back to the way that they were, as if there was a time where we as a country were, a really, were truly a Christian nation. I mean, at the root of all of this is, is kind of this misguided and unbiblical belief that if we could just do that, if we could just get our country to, to obey God, then all would be well. As if we are a modern-day Israel. Listen to me. I say this with all conviction and love. But we are not Israel. When I say we, the United States of America is not Israel. The church is Israel. This is made clear over and again, and Peter makes it incredibly clear. The church, we are formed as a people, a holy nation. The church, across the world, the church and so we, we end up fooling ourselves and we, we think that there was a time that our country obeyed God and that, we, that, that somehow things have just continued on this path of getting worse and worse and worse. I would just say, if we look at history, I would say that's not really the case. What we realize is that one person's dream America was another person's nightmare. I mean, try it. I, I had a whole list. I'm not going to go through the whole list, but try Picking an era that you would think of when you say like, oh, if we could just go back to this, when our country truly loved God. Pick that era. And I guarantee you that whatever era you pick in our nation's history, that for other people in our country, it is the most horrifying time that you could possibly imagine. Things happened that you and I have never had to experience. But that's the way it works. That's the way it's always worked. Because this world is temporary. It is a mix of good and evil. We're all made in the image of God and at times reflect his goodness and other times rebellion against him. And when we try to merge earthly kingdoms with Christ's kingdom, bad things happen. Like, Church, if we want to like set the groundwork to be able to say, okay, well then how do I respond to these things? We must understand that our country is not the same as the kingdom of God. And in fact, the success of this country in no way affects the coming of the kingdom of God. I'm going to say that again. The success of this nation in no way affects the coming of the kingdom of God and all the things that Jesus has declared will come to pass. But our temptation is to confuse them. Our temporary home and our eternal home. Jesus makes this clear. When asked if he is a king, as they say, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting 
that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. I think if we took this passage, this verse, and just plastered it everywhere, like in every church, on every Christian's mirror, and just constantly reminding ourselves of what Jesus says, it would take care of a lot of the the tension that we feel. Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. You want evidence of that? My servants, if it was of this world, my servants would be out there storming the gates right now. They would be fighting to keep this kingdom here, to establish it here. But I'm not. They're not doing that because I am not from this world. And this kingdom, my kingdom is not from this world. And the, the disciples were slow to grasp this. We understand that the disciples struggled with this over and over again. When Jesus is getting this crowd going and it seems like like momentum is picking up, he starts to all of a sudden talk about how he's going to be handed over and he's going to be killed. It says in Matthew 16, he says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, Peter confused these things. Peter intertwined these kingdoms. He entangled them. He saw the coming of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus was bringing and the earthly kingdom. He saw them as inseparable. The idea of of overthrowing the Roman government, of being set free from Roman occupation and oppression and from poverty and the kingdom that Jesus was, was talking about. He couldn't imagine one without the other. And I... I believe that that is where many of us in this country as Christians struggle so much. We can't imagine one without the other. They've been so closely intertwined for so long in this country. You you could be a Christian and be a a good citizen of this country, and in many ways they were synonymous, Like, like two boats that are different boats, but they're just so lashed together that they feel like they're one. And it's hard to, and, and the idea of one of them breaking off feels like, like it's a separation or a breaking of the, of the boat. But Jesus is showing them that his kingdom was not of this world, that he, that he must die to bring about, part, or bring about the kingdom. And he said the kingdom's already at hand. But it's not a kingdom like you and I think. And it wasn't what the disciples could understand. And as much as Peter heard Jesus talk about this all the time, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, like nothing else can sprout up. He talks about this all the time. He's telling them all the time, this is what's going to happen to me. And Peter still doesn't grasp this. Jesus tells like Nicodemus that this is born of the Spirit, not, not of flesh. Like The kingdom I'm bringing is, is right now is of the Spirit. And as much as Peter and the others heard it, they they couldn't fully grasp it. And Peter ends up in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus says, It is time. The time is at hand. This thing I've been talking to you about, all these things are going to happen. It's here as the Roman soldiers come to arrest Jesus. And what does Peter do? Has Peter grown in understanding from his statement that this shall never happen to you, Jesus? 
Now he pulls out his sword and cuts off a soldier's ear because in his mind, regardless of what Jesus has actually said, in Peter's mind, if the kingdom of God is going to be established here, then Rome must be overthrown and Jesus must live. And in trying to protect the kingdom, he dishonors the king. Listen, it is a sobering fact that the most horrifying moments in Christian history have been when we decided that God's kingdom was synonymous with our earthly reign. Because we tend to then take matters into our own hands to bring about our earthly kingdom and to protect it. The Crusades is a very common example of that. And so if you think that's where I'm going, let me throw you a little curveball. I'm going to go American history and manifest destiny. Manifest destiny was the theology, the doctrine that was taught in churches that believed that it was ordained by God that America be the instrument to carry democracy and capitalism to all of North America and to the ends of the earth. After all, democracy is good, right? An open market is good. In short, with language eerily similar to the Great Commission, it captured the hearts of American Christians and led to the support of and participation in all kinds of horrors, including the slaughter of countless Native Americans. And when people looked at that and said, well, that seems wrong. Maybe we can rescue them. Boarding schools were created. And Native American children were kidnapped from their homes and placed in boarding schools where the purpose was to, quote, kill the Indian in him, save the man. And that quote was representative of some of the most compassionate voices of the time. It's all throughout. And to turn a blind eye to that is to remember what we talked about earlier in the series, to call darkness light. And today, white evangelicals according to studies done by the Pew Research, are the least likely group. White evangelicals are the least likely group in our country to believe that we should help refugees. And what we find is here we are 2,000 years after Peter, we are trying to do the same thing. Putting our hope informing the right laws and protecting certain rights while denying others, thinking that, that his kingdom is of this world, and so we think that we are serving him by fighting for it. 
But unless we realize this, that the kingdom of God is not synonymous with the kingdom of America, then we will suffer the same fate and we will actually participate in our country's destruction. As long as we think that the kingdom of God advancing is about what happens in Washington, D.C. or on the Supreme Court or in Israel or in our public schools, then we will chase means of pursuing it that are not honoring God. People will say that this way of Jesus, this idea of the kingdom coming, the way we're going to talk about it, that this is, it's naive, it's great for peacetime, but not in war. And so they'll say things like, I know we are to be as innocent as doves, but that's why I vote for, for politicians who don't mind getting their hands dirty. We have clever phrases to kind of hide that, but that's what's behind it. It's this idea of like, well, I know I'm not supposed to do that, but this guy, he'll totally do that. There are those who will not only pervert the kingdom, but diminish the way of the king, and that is the spirit of the Antichrist. The way of the Antichrist will convince that the way of Jesus is nice and good in theory and will even someday work in heaven, but we are here and we can't afford to be so naive. And if we buy into that spirit, we will seek to advance the kingdom of God by dishonoring the king. Let it not be so. Church, there, those boats have been intertwined for a long time. And it's been so easy to have a foot in both for so long. But the ropes are fraying. The boats are separating. You have to pick a boat. And there are those who will refuse to pick a boat. They don't want one without the other. They won't suffer the loss of the country that they believed was for the sake of the kingdom that truly is. And they will fall in the water. And there are those who will try as hard as they can to hold those together. But when push comes to shove and they realize that they can no longer hold those together, they will jump into the kingdom of this world. Convincing themselves that they can do that and try to keep the kingdom of God near, but you cannot. But those who jump into the boat with Jesus into the kingdom of God boat, they will find a boat full of people who love the king and love the people in the other boat and love the people in the water. People that want the best for our country and will work to overcome the world for the benefit of our neighbor and to the glory of God. But we will not do it in the way of the world, but in the way of the kingdom. Like, there's so many things that I could say about this way of the kingdom. So if at this point you're at a place where you say, okay, like even if I'm entertaining this idea, well, what, is that, what do you think that looks like? Well, Jesus told us these different characteristics of the kingdom are, are clear that Jesus spoke about all the time. But a couple that are really critical are, number one, the kingdom is inside out. It works inside out. And we just touched on Nicodemus. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. This kingdom of God is planted in the hearts of men. Jesus says it's in the midst of you. He brought the kingdom, his presence, and now his presence dwells in the hearts of believer and it, believers, and it transforms inside out. Constantly we see this through scripture. This is not like just grabbing one verse and saying it like, read the New Testament, read the Gospels. It's everywhere. I mean, think of all the things that John could have written about in this letter. Think about all the things he could have written about. He is having to warn against false teachers, against antichrist, against cultural oppression, against division in the church. And what does he talk about more than anything else? Love your brother. Like, come on, John. What about ways that we can infiltrate these systems and, and manipulate them and get them to work in our favor? Like, come on, John. Like, I got to have something more than that. Love your brother. Why? Because it's inside out. I mean, think about when Jesus is asked about taxes. Like, do we pay taxes? And I love those accounts when they ask the disciples, hey, does Jesus pay taxes? And they're like, yeah, of course he does. And they go, hey, Jesus, we pay taxes, right? And you know what Jesus looks at? I mean, think about taxes, man. I mean, taxes are like the most <laughs> oppressive tool that they had in, in some ways. Economic oppression was huge. They could, tax collectors could ta tax whatever they wanted. Like you think that tax day was, is bad here? Like imagine if the government just said, okay, it spits out like this is how much you owe. And then you get another letter that says, yeah, we just decided because like an IRS agent says, because I, I wanted a new car, you owe $10,000 more. I mean, that's what they were able to do. It was full of corruption. It was oppressing his people. And Jesus says, yeah, pay your taxes. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar. Give to God that which is God's. Is he condoning corruption? Does he not care about the corruption that's happening or about truth in the, the political world? Does he not care about that? He's saying there's bigger things. Like his answer to all that, if someone said like, well, don't you care about these things? His answer would probably be, eh, there's far bigger things at play. Like when things happen to you in this country, when things happen around us, we have to remember there are bigger things at play than the injustices that we are facing. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world are in a battle, but it is happening in our hearts to be able to be faithful in the midst of it. Because that matters more. So it's inside out. As we think about these things, like remember the kingdom is inside out. That means it's more important what is flowing out of your heart towards your neighbor than that you correctly determine whether what your neighbor is doing is right or wrong. Do you see that? The Pharisees, most of the time, were right about external things. And Jesus says, it's worthless. Your whitewashed tomb. So it's inside out. It's also this principle of small becomes big in the kingdom. It's another thing that we just have a hard time. We, 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 we think that it's out there. We think that the kingdom of God, is that the battle is waging out there. And we miss the fact that Jesus is constantly telling us, no, it's in here and flows outward. But we also 
forget that Jesus all the time is saying that the kingdom of God looks tiny and insignificant, but it is growing. He put another parable before them, saying the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Little insignificant things become big things. We we tend to think about big things. We tend to think that the thing that we've got to worry most about are the big things. You know, like who gets elected as president, who gets appointed to Supreme Courts. We think that's more important than how I choose to love my neighbor today. We think that's bigger. And Jesus says, No, it's not. Small things become big things. The world looks at those big things. The world values those big things disproportionately. But the small things are what matter, and they are the things that grow into big things. This is how Jesus says the kingdom operates. Do you believe him? It's a mustard seed. It's a little leaven hidden in three measures of flour. Like if you believe that he is the son of God, and if you believe that he has brought the kingdom and that he is the king and that he reigns in that kingdom and that what he says about the kingdom is true, that it is growing like a mustard seed, then John has something really powerful to say about how we overcome the world. Look what he says in 1 John chapter 2. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So one of the things that John says in in overcoming the world is that don't love the world. In short, put those desires for that world to death. All that the world offers. We we think of those things and kind of just these individual sins and the things that we know are abhorrent, but it also happens when we're trying to make this world our home. If we don't die to that, then we can't experience the kingdom. All that the world offers, the desires of the flesh, pride of life, the desires of the eyes, it will be overcome by greater desires, better things. Things of the spirit, of new eyes that will see and a boasting in the cross. And the way that we experience that is to put to death the old self with its desires. To understand that these things are passing away. And to put to death the desire to pursue them. Right after, when Jesus is, after he talks about this with Peter, he says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What does the kingdom of this world have to offer you that is better than what Jesus offers in his kingdom? What temporary pleasure or comfort or safety or riches is worth that? is worth it if it it leaves you empty 
And sacrifice is your eternal joy. Like, what do you want right now that the world is offering? Like, for so long in the church, we've just talked about it in terms of vices. And just these things we know we are to avoid. But what about our very lives here on this earth? Like, what is the world offering you? The promise of of returning to a time when you were most comfortable? When you didn't have to have hard conversations with your kids when they come home from school? Listen, if you want to be a blessing to your community and see the kingdom of God impact the world around you and the communities and the nation that we, that we love and that we're a part of and where God placed us, then stop holding on to the idea that you can have both an earthly kingdom and utopia here and the kingdom of God. If you want to see the kingdom of God flourish in your life, then you must put to death the desire to make this earth your kingdom. A.W. Tozer said, In every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. We remain king within the little kingdom of man's soul and wear our tinsel crown with all the pride of Caesar. But we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. Should have practiced that word better. Listen, you can't have both. You cannot serve two masters. You can't put your hope in recovering some dream of what this country was at one point and then realizing that it wasn't ever that thing to begin with. You can't have that and have the kingdom that is real, that our Jesus came to to bring. And someday, one day he is coming back and he will establish it with a new heavens and a new earth. Like that day is coming. But right now, the kingdom, he has said, I planted these seeds in your heart. It is meant to flourish from the inside out. It is a small thing that becomes big. And it happens by putting to death the desire to all these other things. If you don't do that, then you remain on the throne and the desires of this world remain alive and well in you regardless of how moral your life looks. And you begin to want the things of the kingdom and the king becomes secondary. I want this world. I want my neighborhood. I want my community. I want it to look like the kingdom. But the king becomes secondary. Because when he isn't bringing about the kingdom as you think he should, you start to take matters into your own hands and you say, Jesus, I got it. But you can't obey him unless you put to death the desires of this world and pledge your allegiance to him, to Christ alone. Your obedience will only be partial, only when it overlaps with your desires, only when those boats look like they're lining up will you actually be obeying God. And if that's the case, you're not actually obeying God. You're still sitting on your own throne. You just happen to agree with Jesus in part of what he says. 
I don't claim that this is easy, but we are people of the Bible. We are people of the Word. He has revealed this to us. Like we can't look at the, just all of the scripture and just say, yeah, but that doesn't apply now. Yes, it does. Look how else he says to overcome the world. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? He gives the key to the victory of overcoming the world, like by faith. And that's demonstrated in our obeying his commandments and trusting him, which is just like, let's, let's just make it really simple. It's simply going through my life saying, I believe Jesus is king. I believe he is Lord. I believe that he bought me and that my life now exists for him. So whatever happens around me, my eyes are fixed on Jesus and obeying him. And so you can take away my rights. You can make me wear a mask. You can make me pay extra money. You can do whatever you want to do. And it doesn't matter to me because Jesus is my king and I trust him and I'm going to continue to love him. Like how can you possibly do that? How can we possibly keep these commandments of loving God and loving others? How can we do it in in action? How can we do it in power? It takes faith. You have to believe that what Jesus is offering is better. Otherwise, it's not worth it to love your enemy. Your enemy's a jerk. They're trying to destroy you. How can you love him if you don't believe that what Jesus says and offers is better? You can't. It'll fail. How do we know that we belong to him, that you love him and you love your brother? How how are you going to do that when things are hard? How are you going to forgive people when they do things that are unforgivable? How are you going to love your neighbor when they say things that are are horrifying to you? When it seems like the the world is crumbling around you, how are you going to pray for your leaders and not, not speak ill of them? How are you going to do that when you feel like they're destroying your way of life? How are you going to support the teacher that's teaching your children things that, that you believe are an abomination to God? Like, how are you going to do it? You're going to grit your teeth? To try to, like, power through it? It's got to be faith. How are you going to do it when you, when, when you see rights being taken away or when you see another mass shooting or you see more abortions happen? Or you see more evidence of racial injustice. Like how? How can you continue to obey his commandments? It's faith. Faith that it's better. Faith that he's better. Faith that what he offers is better. Faith that he is sufficient to bring about all that he has commanded. And his command to us is to love him and to love others. Faith that he will make all things right. Faith that he loved you while you were an enemy of God and he still loves you and me as we stumble through this life. Faith that he is faithful to complete the work that he has started. Faithful Faith that treasures in heaven are better than treasures on earth. Faith that knowing him is worth the loss of all things. Even our earthly freedom, all things. 
If you don't believe that, then you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And we have created a world where we can not believe these things and still claim to be Christian. It's not what the Bible teaches. And if we would buy into the kingdom, if we would buy into this kingdom of God and to know that the ground zero is in here and not out there, that the big battles that are being fought are in here, in me persevering in, in love and in kindness and gentleness and, and being able to endure all things for the joy set before us. Like if we buy into that and we believe that these small things, like this small step of faith right here in front of me is as important as a presidential election. If I believe that he's going to take something and do something incredible with that, if I, if I believe that and in that belief, in that faith, I put to death the desires of my flesh in me. Every time I believe that what the world is offering me is better, every time my heart goes that way, I put to death. I don't, I don't just try to put it into the closet or in a corner and put it on time out. I kill it. If I do that, and I walk by faith and obey Jesus, the evidence that all this is happening is found in the fruit of the Spirit in my life. Remember last week we talked about how the Antichrist stands opposed to these things? He'll make you believe that the kingdom is this earth. That it's marked by political victories for righteous causes. And make no mistake, the Antichrist will uplift righteous causes. He doesn't care about righteous versus unrighteous causes. He cares about being opposed to Christ. He will tell you that it is won by big victories. Rather than loving your neighbor. And he will convince you that you can have the kingdom while dishonoring the king. And you will know him by his fruit. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Unless you and I define fruit in a way that makes us comfortable and makes us feel like we're the good tree and other people are the bad tree, we don't have to define it ourselves. The Bible defines it. Jesus defines it by loving God and loving others. And Paul says, look, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So those indwelled by the Spirit of God function like Jesus. And people notice In Acts 4, we see now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John as they were brought in for questioning and they they proclaimed the gospel, the good news of Jesus and the coming of the kingdom, they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Recognizing that you and I have been with Jesus is a matter of heart transformation and the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. Not in the positions that we take or how loud we speak. That's coming from a person who gets riled up and speaks loudly sometimes and drips sweat all over his Bible. 
Listen, if we don't have love, we are not of him. If you lead with other things, you are not of him. If the fruit of the Spirit is not evident in your life, you are not of him. And the people who try to woo you, if it's not evident in them, they are not of him, regardless of the positions that they take. Even if what they say is truth. And we are tempted to fall into that because we want to believe there's a different way. Like we like it when, when the powerful we agree with kind of flex their muscles, right? Like, I mean, think about that. Like we, we, we like it when, when someone just goes on a rant. Like you probably like it when I go on like one of these things where I'm going off the rails a little bit. And if you agree with me, you're like, yeah, go get them. But we do that all the time. God help us. I mean, we think about that when we watch movies and the superhero gets pushed too far and they're like, kind of, and you're like, ah, here we go. It's going to unleash on them. Or when Rambo has had enough. That's for all you older people. (laughs) Or when our favorite talk show host goes on a rant or a political activist, like, really refutes them. You want to look on YouTube? You know what one of the top types of videos there are? Is when somebody, when it's like this idea of like, he just put this person to shame. Right? Like, we want to see the person I agree with just obliterate the person that I think is a fool. It's not of Jesus. It's not of Jesus. Those who are of the Spirit grow in the fruit of the Spirit. And as they age, they grow in their fruit. They do not become bitter as they age. They become more kind, more gentle, more loving, more hopeful in the kingdom. And that comes from believing that he is sufficient. So what do we do? Look, we just have to understand that God has placed us here. This is our home here on earth. You read Jeremiah, and like we should, we should love and look, work for the good of our communities, our cities. That's why we care about things like homelessness and joblessness and addiction in our communities. We care about the schools. We care about people. Like We are not separatists. We don't pull out and say, like, well, good luck. My ride's going to be here soon. Like we don't do that. We engage. We press in. We understand that our hope is not in the success of our earthly mission, but that we are looking to something bigger and greater beyond. That our desire is not to win over people here, but to please our Lord and to walk in obedience to him. Like our country is like, you're going to, it's on both sides. Like some people think we got to get back. Our country used to be a Christian nation and, and is like, it was good at one point. We followed God at one point. No, we didn't. Let's have a talk about American history. We didn't. There's never been a time. However, then you have other people who say, like, we got to burn it all down. This is the worst place in the world. I also disagree. That this, that this place, this country, that this is our home, there's some things about it that are the best things and the most kingdom-like things that the, the world has ever seen. And then there are parts of our history and our current days that are as evil as the world has ever seen. It's both. But this is where God has placed us. So we seek first the kingdom of God. We believe that it is an inside-out battle. We prioritize heart-capturing over forced behavior. Like, which is more, which is more effective? 
I'll say it again. I know every time I, 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 I can't help myself. I just want to throw out something so you know. Like, let's be clear about what we're talking about here. Things like, which is more effective, a law banning abortions or if every gospel-infused Christian was a neighbor and has spent years demonstrating the gospel and the love of Christ to their neighbor when that neighbor finds out that they're pregnant and they don't know what to do. Which one do you want? A law telling them, hey, I don't care what you're desiring or what's going on or what you're scared of or anything like that, but you can't do it. Or a neighbor who's saying, hey, that baby growing in you is in the image of God. It's not an accident. I know you feel like it's out of control, but it's not. God placed that child there and he placed you here and it was for your good and he loves you and he will walk with you. And to demonstrate that, I will walk with you. Which is better. Like we believe that small things become big things so we don't sell our soul and give up our platform with our neighbor for a national platform that's passing away. We put to death our desires and we walk in faithful obedience to our Lord every moment of every day and we are transformed by the love of God and that overflows to those around us. It may sound simplistic or naive to how the world works. Well, if it does, then so be it. Because that is the cross. And it is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who believe, it is the power of God to save. I'm always told, I'm often given the critique that I don't give enough practical help. And I don't. So I try to think of all these ways that I could give practical help. Instead, I'm going to let Paul give practical help. I'm just going to read this. And I want you to hear every word. This is the word of God. I'm not going to comment on it at all. Just going to read it. And I want you to believe, to take this seriously. This is the word of God written by the Apostle Paul to the church, telling them, if you're wondering all this stuff, at the end, towards the end of Romans, where he's like unpacked all these big theological things, he gives a bullet list that maybe someday we'll preach a whole series on, but a bullet list of, okay, okay, well, in case you're wondering, let me get practical. This is what it means. And if you believe the word of God, then hear these words from Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. That deserves some commentary, but I'm not going to. Do not Be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, God, help us. Even the best of us right now in this world, the ones who have trusted you the most and the longest and have walked with you and know all these things to be true, we are struggling with these truths. We still struggle to believe because we look around and God, we want to see your work done here as it is in heaven. And we are struck with this tension that your kingdom has come and yet it is still yet to come. It is already here and it is not yet here. It is here in part and one day it will be here in full. But where it is here in part, let it be here in our hearts. Because where it is in part is in the hearts and lives of the believers in this world. The church that you have redeemed and saved for yourself to call us a people God, forgive us for how we have dabbled in other, placing our hope in other kingdoms. Forgive us for how that has turned us to places where we know we have dishonored you and our, and our methods and our means. Trying to achieve an end that we thought was of you. But God, I pray that you would convict us and show us. That the kingdom of God is where Jesus reigns. And right now, through your sovereign wisdom in the history of the world, you reign in the hearts of men. And you reign in the heavens, and you reign in sovereign over all things. But in your sovereign wisdom, you have determined that we would be in this state, in between these two kingdoms. And that our calling is to be faithful to you, our true king, regardless of what happens around us. So God, let us, let us be found faithful. Let us hop into the boat with you. Let's trust you with our whole hearts and let's believe that the, the work inside goes out to believe that the small things that you are sowing become big things. To believe that we can put our desires to death and crucify them. That we've been put to death with Christ and are able to rise again with him. To raise from the dead. To walk in newness of life. A life of faith and obedience to you. God, help us. Help our unbelief. To the glory of your name and for our unending joy. In the power of Jesus Christ. Amen.